Brent, Janice, Father Brent, Mother Janice. It's yes, good to have you with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to have you. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's a privilege to be here. We love we love chatting with you. So I I had thought of just sharing with everyone that you had started a podcast, and then I thought, why not let you share the news? So you have, in fact, I am spoiling the outcome <laughs> here. You have, in fact, started a podcast. Talk to us about what it is and how it happened. Why why did you do this and why why now? Well, the name of it is Life and Love Nuggets. And we picked that because we've been doing this for so many years. You know, we've been therapists for at least 37 years. I try to lose count. Um, but, but <laughs> at least have, 37. I love that. At least, at least yes. So we've been married 44 years. And so there's just things along the way that we find ourselves saying to people over and over again that we thought would be nice to have a record of. So it's really a lot of tips on life and relationships. Yeah, the so goal, it's like, yeah, Father Brent, go ahead. Well, it's just the goal is to help people in their own individual life be able to thrive. You know, we're all in this individual journey trying to figure out how to do life and how to honor God and, and follow his path and do relationships and all that stuff. And, and so how do we thrive as individuals? And then also, because we've been marriage counselors for so long, you know, it's um, that then impacts our relationships and, and what are ways that people can uh, find rhythms and, and ways of doing life and loving that are, you know, help them flourish. And so so it's, you know, it's going to be kind of all kind of stuff, but, you know, from our own individual life, a relationship with ourselves and God, as well as relationships with others. And, and um, so as Janice said, we, because we've been, because we're old guys, <laughs> we're old people, and we've been doing this a long time, um, you do find certain rhythms, you know, I mean, there's just yeah. certain patterns and things that people kind of everybody deals with so it's like okay maybe we could speak to those things and and maybe that'd be helpful yeah so it sounds like an accumulated wisdom that has kind of proven useful proven yeah. to yeah. work over time yeah give There's us an example or two. i'm sorry give us an example or two like what, what are some of the things that have shown up the the, the smooth stones that david finds you know in when the time comes the first podcast we did was probably the most popular sermon we ever did over the years. And it was called, so you're going to be with family for the holidays. <laughs> and so <laughs> dealing with extended family, having multi-generations all together, people with different beliefs, just some boundaries that you need to set and expectations you need to have going into the holidays. Because mm. as counselors, we spend November, December preparing people for the holidays and January talking them down from the holidays. <laughs> and so it's just some tips that we've learned personally over the years and from working with different families. Yeah. That's how I found out about your podcast is someone told me, I know you're going to see your family. <laughs> you should listen to this. <laughs> and I'm sure someone was telling my family, yes. Chris is coming to see you. You should listen to this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's dealing with kind of all kinds of issues. We're you know, one of the first few we talked about, how do we, how do we live in forgiveness in our life? You know, we're all going to bump into um, people that are going to be hurtful and disappoint us. And we've all been, you know, the scripture tells us to do certain things, you know, to live in unity, to forgive forgiveness, to do these things. But 
um, how do we actually do that? You know, and so as counselors, we deal with the practice of doing those things. How do I actually do forgiveness? You know, I like like forgiveness. I think we've always kind of been you know taught that it's just kind of like a light switch. I just decide I'm going to do it, so I just flip the switch. You know, do it. and found it really is a process, and so. Um, so it's things like that. There's certain, certainly in marriage, we find there's really common themes that every couple is going to deal with. Um, the, the way that we love each other, love is an action word, you know, what are rhythms, healthy marriages have good, healthy habits. So it's how do you develop these good habits in your life? And then how do you blend? We've been, you know, been taught that two become one, which was probably in most of our wedding ceremonies. It sounds like a really cool idea <laughs> how in the world right. do you do that when you take two very different personalities and blend them together and so so it's those kinds of practical action oriented steps that we can take that can you know help us in our daily life and relationships so let's go back janice you mentioned that you've been married for 44 years and you've been therapists for at least 37 at least yeah <laughs> let's let's talk about your your work as ministers i mean as a couple you've been in ministry longer than those 37 years i mean the yes. therapy has been a focal point but you've also been pastors mm -hmm. and i know that you you work together at oru too and overseeing dorm life and so on so just give us those of us who know you need to hear it again and those who don't know you tell us a little bit about the brent and janice sharp story how has god kind of led you as ministers from where you began to where you are now that's a long story <laughs> we we met in 74 at oru he came from indiana i came from kansas we were sitting in line to get our pictures taken for the yearbook and i flirted with him and he didn't pick up on it, um, which is, you know, something I love in a husband, but right. it's not really great for a guy that you're trying to meet. Um, so it took him a whole year before he really noticed me. And then we were the couple that got married the day after we graduated. Mm. Um, do you want to take Yeah. So, um, you know, we didn't know exactly, you know, I've talked to people about calling and talked to students on how did you know what you were called to do and what you were going to be oriented towards and I would just say we had no clue you know <laughs> I mean I, I went to ORU I was I was studying pre-law I was going to be a lawyer <laughs> you're so lawyerly Brent yeah, I think that every is. time I see you yeah he's just so vicious is the thing mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what a lawyer really did, but I kind of thought, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Janice was actually studying TV broadcasting. Yeah, you know? I was going to do TV news. Uh -huh. <laughs> I can see that, actually. Actually, that's that's more likely. She had a better sense of herself. She did. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. She did. Absolutely. She did. Um, and so, you know, it was really, um, I was a, a resident advisor. Most people have been to college. You know, you've got a person that's kind of over your dorm wing or whatever, and and I just found this people just, you know, guys would just come and hang out and they would talk. And I just had this sense of being able to kind of be present with people. And they just kept coming back, you know, and wanted to ask for stuff. And so, so, you know, I was probably a junior or so. And I thought, I just really felt this call, particularly in the marriage and family life. I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. Oh my goodness. I did not know that. Um, um, 
during that time, I mean, I became dorm director after that. Janice was uh, actually had been asked to be the women's chaplain. Who are you? You might talk Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, it was one of those things I avoided. Um, I kept trying to explain to him I wasn't spiritual enough, Uh, but I ended up being women's chaplain for a couple of years. That really was the favorite my favorite job I've ever had. And I, I had gotten my degree in counseling before that, my master's, but um, I always said that, you know, I wouldn't really do it because I'm not the counselor personality type, but um, I ended up after being women's chaplain, I just really felt a call to, to do counseling. Mm-hmm. And then we started getting involved in a young church at that point. Yeah. And so this, you know, I, you know, I tell folks in ministry that I, again, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and uh, we had, felt really directed towards the counseling world. But, you know, back in the early 80s, counseling in the church or Christian counseling was just not a thing. I mean, people were like really suspect about counseling. You know, that's secular, humanistic kind of stuff. And so you just um, got tapes of your pastor's sermon and listened to 10 times or more, and and then they wouldn't need counseling. And keep coming to the altar and they will lay hands on you and Mm -hmm. then you're going to be fine. You know, and so that, that was kind of the uphill Climb, you know, mm-hmm. on, uh, that we were dealing with at that time, and and so I had a, I was going into pre law, so I had a business degree. You could kind of go business direction into law, and then I changed and developed a psychology major, and and then got a master's degree in counseling, and we didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And then a church asked me to come and be in charge of their finances and start a counseling ministry. <laughs> I mean, who does that? Who has those two different things, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was my entry in 1982. That was my entry into ministry. And, and as I worked with that church um, and they had a large television ministry, I mean, it was a, a really fast growing church. Um, and um, I, as I worked with that, it, you know, it just kind of started, coming alive in me just this pastoral role um, of caring for people and of course I always had kind of bit that slant of wanting to sit with people and help them process things and so forth and so um, so we you know I kind of took on that pastor role then after I was there for a bit Janice you know we kind of started doing some things together and and uh, then we were passionate about doing some marriage conference stuff and, you know, speaking at different in different churches. And we because of our role in that church, we got asked to do those kind of things. And 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 that just kind of came alive in us to do this together. And so we started our part time practice and and uh, on the side of being, you know, pastors and and you know, it's been four kids, having having four kids. Bored and it's yeah. like, let's be pastors and pretty, mm-hmm. pretty bored in that way. And so. And, and so it wasn't until um, that particular church kind of went a whole different direction and we felt led to leave that we actually planted a church then. So I was in the role of kind of the senior associate pastor there. And um, we felt that we were to kind of move on and, and kind of planted a church in the late 90s and um, did that um, uh, for several years on our own. And then um we connected with Bishop Ed, um, you know, yeah. in mid, you know, in about two late two thousands, and and uh, and then we blended our churches together, and and you know, so that story continued there, and and so um, you want to talk about why we were particularly drawn? Yeah, well, the, the um, Bishop had obviously 
kind of been leading his um, church. Um, you know, we had kind of basically independent charismatic churches, yeah. if you want to put it under an umbrella. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and then both of us on our own individual journeys became fascinated with the sacramental um, church and things that we just kind of left, mm-hmm. you know, pushed to the curb for years and years and and thought that if the Holy Spirit didn't say something today or this afternoon, then it couldn't be legitimate. <laughs> yes, you know? right. yes. And so the early church fathers, I mean, that's old, you know, that's old stuff. And so I don't know that we consciously were aware of that, but I think that's kind of what we were doing. And so both of us begin to move kind of parallel in, in that path. And, and as we begin to talk and begin to kind of dream together about the future and then tried to move these two congregations towards this in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is the Mecca of charismatic world. And, and people were, I mean, we, we know how to shrink a church. I mean, we are, we are quite, quite experts at this and people didn't know what we were then, you know, they either, we weren't charismatic enough for some, or we were too, too charismatic for others that were coming in through the sacramental liturgical perspective. Anyway, so, so and, and that's what moved you toward the priesthood. So talk to me a little bit about the move toward holy orders and the priesthood and then the connection to spiritual direction for you. How how did those how did those emerge? Yeah. I think the move towards the priesthood was was very natural because we had been pastors for so many years and we did have such a belief in just the beauty of the sacraments. I mean, I feel feel like we discovered a whole new richness and depth that we were lacking in the past. Um, I think just having the historical church to to lean on and having bishops, um, I think there was so much accountability and there was just a sense of safety in that. And so it really felt natural to go into the priesthood. Um, I, I knew I was about to retire from the church not long after that, which is kind of funny to get ordained as a priest and then retire. Um, but spe- specifically, I knew that, you know, our church would always, I thought they would always allow us to be involved somewhat, but I felt like I was called to do it specifically for the younger women. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to know that a woman could be a priest along yes. with the men, um, and that there really was not any, um, I, I wasn't a second class citizen. And I, I really believe that at Sanctuary and just in the diocese that we're in, there's such a value for women and their role that that's really what led me towards the priesthood. Yeah, and I would say also um, it was the formation that it offered. Um, you know, we had graduate degrees, we went back and got graduate work in theology as well as our counseling work. And, but in our previous um, church. I mean, somebody laid hands on us and said, you're a pastor. You're a pastor now, yes. <laughs> and now it wasn't that we didn't have some history and, you know, yeah. so forth, but there really wasn't the formation that the priesthood really uh, offered. And that was fascinating to us, you know, that was to, to um, go through certain training and rhythms of um, in that context was, uh, it just, 
you know, and, and even at that ordination, it was just really something special, mm -hmm. you know, something, something beyond what we had experienced before. <laughs> and, you know, again, <laughs> we actually, I retired last year officially from the church here. And so, so, you know, it was just, we just had a few years of this. And so it's a little bit, people were thinking, well, what are you doing? <laughs> You're kind of old people already, you know, but, but it just, it, it, it um, was significant for us. And that then, begin to kind of stir in us this whole idea of spiritual direction. Uh, yeah. You know, that was a bit of a new concept for us in our, from our background. And, and uh, so we went and got some further training in that. Uh, and certainly we found that what we're doing, even though we look back at our counseling work as, I mean, everybody's known us and as Christian counsel, I mean, we're Christians that do counseling. And so, so they, they, they value that part of their life. That's what they come for is for that yeah. to be integrated. And I would say that some of the work that we've done for 40 years has been spiritual direction. Yeah. But That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, but let me just put a pin in it for now. Yeah. Okay. Let's get around to that at some point, what okay. the relationship is between therapy and spiritual yeah. direction. But I want you to continue for now, Father Brent. Yeah. So um, the, um, so in that particular training, then uh, we, just became fascinated with the opportunity to sit with people differently. And again, I, without going into that particular nuance, the difference there, um, that I think as we were went through formation as priests, then that just kind of became a natural next step, you know, yeah. for us. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and we don't, you know, we don't advertise that we just do it with, people that ask and it's mainly other people that are in holy orders or, you know, being formed as deacons or priests right now. And, and, um, cause I mean, we, we actually do have for the first time in our life, a little bit of margin in our life, even though our counseling practice is busy, we always yeah. had that and a church. And so it was like, we were, we, we, we seriously needed counseling. <laughs> we were way no over. No one needs pastoring like pastors. No one that's needs. Sure. Like we were way overdoing it. But, um, and so that's, you know, given us an opportunity mm -hmm. to, to step into that world a bit. And, so and me, I, oh, oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, no, you I was just going to say, I think the whole process of, of being trained as spiritual directors had such a profound impact on us. Um, there was just such a beauty in being with other people that were being trained as spiritual directors and seeing the practices in their lives. Um, you know, I have to admit when we first started talking about silence, you know, it's, and they would say things like, okay, we're going to have some time of silence, or we're going to have some time where we want you to meditate on this verse of scripture. We only have two hours. So, you know, you're going to have to cut it short. Um, and I'm like, wow, you know what? I thought I heard from God in about five minutes. What do I do with the rest of the time? So, yeah. so it took some, <laughs> it took some adjustment in yeah. order to really get into some of the spiritual practices, but it was, it was very forming. And, and as we started looking into training in that area, um, we were talking with Bishop Ed and, you know, at that time he was living in New York city and, and had a spiritual director there. And, yeah. and, and there were different kinds of spiritual direction that, that we could have gone to around the country. And, and, uh, you know, we even knew some people that have been in the professional counseling, Christian counseling world for years that were moving more towards spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, 
that we thought, well, maybe we'd go get trained there. And then Bishop, um, you know, asked his spiritual director, who do you recommend for this? And, 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 and as we talked about it, we felt like that we should go somewhere that had um, more of a focus on the sacramental imagination mm-hmm. that we were new to, you know, rather than going to people that yes. were kind of in our stream before. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so we went to one in upper New York. Um, it was such an amazing, you know, it was Incredible. at a con- convent and, and there were people from all different, mm-hmm. you know, uh, perspectives. I mean, we were, the, we were the only people west of the Mississippi, you know, I think they were wondering who are these people coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, yeah. and uh, several from the Catholic tradition and several from um, uh, Episcopal um, had some from Presbyterian background. We had one that was um, um, Salvation Army. Salvation Army in Canada. There were different, you know, all kind of different perspectives, and and yet it just soaked us in um, this tradition, you know that, and uh, and we saw the different even flavors even within the sacramental tradition, and sure. just it just fascinated us um um and you know <laughs> doing most of our work in Tulsa Oklahoma where people build big ministries and you know it's you know how are we going to save the world by supper and and uh being with people that are just learning to sit with the spirit and and let that be the guide instead of all of our efforts um was just a real breath of fresh air for us mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm gonna zero in for a moment on this this what you just raised, Brent, I think, by talking about pastors, ministers who are trying to change the world. What what have you seen both as a therapist and as spiritual directors over the years? What I mean, that's a pretty common pattern, unfortunately. You know, mm-hmm. people, young people who feel some kind of calling and and try try to do too much or at least they they burn themselves out in one way or another trying i I think we've seen during the pandemic you know a a massive defection away from ministry by so many people who were just kind of overcome talk to us a little bit about what you've learned over those years as therapists and spiritual directors for people in ministry who are kind of at the end of it i mean what what have you seen? What? How would you diagnose that? What leads to that kind of burnout in your in your judgment? And then, what would you say to people who might be hearing this, saying, "Hey, that's me. I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking about taking off the collar, walking out the door, you know, mm-hmm. picking up some other job." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know this has to be common sure. engagement for you. So, where 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 would you start with that? So, the particularly post pandemic. Mm-hmm. that has that made church really difficult and a lot of people you know stop even going to church you know or or people not even giving as much you know and and uh i think we've seen a lot of pastors and priests um slip into very much efforting mm-hmm. i don't know dr green if that's a word mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> of course it is and on, on this podcast if you can use it it's a word okay that's the rule i i just think there's there's a bit of a panic i think of mm-hmm. oh my gosh we've got to 
shoulder this and bolster this and make this happen and convince yeah. people of the validity of the church and when things are done by that own that human effort that i've got to perform in this way so that people see me as successful and see and even see god as successful right. <laughs> you know i mean people are so worried about his reputation you know, gotta make God look good. You gotta make God look good. And obviously, God is not worried about that. Right, right. <laughs> and, and but there's the need for that, and yeah. the need to, you know, in my group of pastors and prisoners and leaders, I need them to see me as successful. And when we trip into that, which is just so common for our human culture, um, you know the two greatest fears that we've dealt with for 40 years is the, the fear of failure and the fear of rejection in some way. And now we've been coached in that since we were little people, yeah. you know, we, we went to schools that had A's and B's and C's and blue ribbons and red ribbons. And we were taught really quickly. The more, you know, the more you succeed at things, the more successful you are at these things, you know, um, A's and blue ribbons are, Mm-hmm. That's where you get successful and it makes you a better person. And so, yeah. so we've kind of been formed in that. And I obviously, even in the church, we've dipped into that world. You know, well, good Christians read their Bible every day and they pray this amount of time and they do all these things. And and so I just think it's easy for pastors to to just feel the weight of this. Um, instead of what does this mean, God? <laughs> you know, and and I can't do this. It's only your strength mm-hmm. and by your the breath of your spirit mm-hmm. can I move here. Yeah. And when when that strength, we recognize we don't have it, and we tap into that strength when we're moving in that way and not so worried about results. Yeah. Um, that I think those are ones that are gonna uh, do this for a long time and 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 do it with with some measure of, of grace and, and strength. And, and I think, you know, as a parent of millennials and, you know, raising kids in the nineties, I think one of the things that our generation really messed up on, I mean, I can think of several things we messed up on, but, but, but the one I'll own today um, is, you know, we were raised or we, we had the belief that we were raising world changers. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's like, you can be anything. God has a great call on you. You're going to take the nations for Jesus, which I'm I'm not trying to downplay that. But I think the message it gave you was, if you're not doing something really big and you're famous, you just haven't made it. And so it, it caused people to not realize that God may be using them with a few people and that may have an incredible impact on the world that they can't see. Mm-hmm. But but we we've just made it look like it has to be crowds. And I think that is just not God. Yeah. And I with our, our upcoming podcast, I tell the story, and you probably heard me tell this, Chris, of uh, you know, when I was in junior high, um, there was a guy at the skating rink that would read the Bible out loud. And I did not come from a Christian home. And so um I should say an evangelical home. And so I was fascinated and I'd stand around the corner and listen to him because I was too cool to actually act like I was listening to him. But by him reading the Bible, I became fascinated and it caused me to go home and really 
pull out my Gideon's Bible and to seek out people of faith. So that guy's probably 70 now, and he has no idea the impact he had on my life Mm -hmm. and my kids' life and other people's lives. So I think it's, we get too caught up in the big instead. He didn't have a, he didn't have a bullhorn, by the way. No, he (laughs) He was just calmly reading to a few people. (laughs) Machines or lights or anything like that. There was none of that there. I picture him in the middle of the skating ring with a disco ball above his head and a bullhorn wearing nothing but cut off jean shorts reading the Bible. That's what I picture. Yeah, that was a so You're telling me that's not what happened. Yeah, exactly. That's not what happened. Yeah. That's, oh, God have mercy. So I, I, I think the, you said something just a moment ago, Brent, about people who are going to be able to do this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So if you were giving advice, you know, 40, you're 40 years into this work now. If you're giving advice to people my age and younger who who feel called to ministry in whatever form, right? Whether we're talking about pastoral or priestly ministry or something, counseling, spiritual direction, but I don't want to delimit who we're talking to here unnecessarily. But people who feel God has called me to serve people in this way, how, what would you say to them? What are the what are the kind of the habits they need to start developing now? What kind of self awareness do they need? to keep doing that long-term personally and also relationally. I mean, I, I really want to get to the question, how have you two managed to remain present to each other while you're doing all of this work for other people? I mean, how have you managed not just to have a good marriage, but to take care of each other, right? To be present in ways that you're not just working on your marriage in the abstract, you're taking care of each other personally. So I, I want to come to that question in a moment, but let's start with what advice would you give what warnings, what suggestions, and where would you start helping people get ready for the long haul of faithful work over their lifetime? Yeah. Well, I think the challenge, and I'll just speak to my own burnout of, you know, um, several years in the ministry, um, was uh, responsible senior associate pastor of a church of 5,000. I was responsible for 50 staff members and had a senior pastor that came and spoke on Sunday and then left all week. You know, um, our church was kind of a TV studio for him and responsible for that, um, managing all those things. And I was just about to drop. Um, yeah. And I wasn't aware of my own emotional well-being. Um, I was kind of mad at everybody because um, I was staying late every night and, and uh, all the staff were leaving when they were supposed to at five or five. Like, right, right. And I walked, watched all of them leave thinking, I, if it wasn't for me, this place wouldn't be standing, you know, and, and just efforting. Just feel like I had to keep all of this together. I had to, I, everybody needed to think highly of me that, that, you know, Pastor Brent wasn't here, then this place wouldn't make, I just needed all of that. It was was just really clueless of my own ego needs um, and how much I needed those strokes. And, and the ministry was really validating to me. You know, I had people say, Brent, how do you do everything that you do? And I'd say some stupid little humble, well, just, you know, brother, just pray for me or whatever. And and inside, I'm like, oh, more, 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 more. I mean, it was like I was snorting coke. I mean, it was, you know. Do you know what that's like? No, no but, but I've heard. I didn't expect 
I did not expect the conversation to go. That's right. That's right. Here, but I'm glad it did. Sorry. Um, and I just, I mean, I would, you know, Janice would call and we had two little kids out of our four now at home going, are you coming home tonight? And I was upset at her for, don't you understand what I have to do here and mm-hmm. all this important work and stuff. And I was just, I was a mess. And, but I was, it was all out of wrong motivation. It was out of what I was needing the ministry to do. I was needing these successful steps and, and stages to, to show about me. And so I really had this, you know, kind of had to really let go and, and uh, recognize that that is certainly not what God was asking me to do. That that was all my efforting. Um, And what is it, you know, that he was asking me to do? And first of all, it was, he was just asking me to be me, (laughs) you know, to, to know that he had put me in this role um to thrive and so if i wasn't thriving i was i was doing something that he hadn't called me to do um but i had a hard time letting go of that because i'm afraid i wouldn't be needed as much and so it was really a wrestling and it wasn't until i got to where it doesn't matter what people think it doesn't matter if the board you know thinks i'm not doing enough or (laughs) whatever i'm spending too much time with my family and not enough at work or then that would just say to me, well, I shouldn't be working for this ministry, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but there was a lot of fear there until I was able to kind of let that go and, and find certain ways of being okay with, with, with what he was breathing to me or speaking to me um, that what I was to do came out of that, came out of yeah. I don't want to over cliche this, but out of my being, you know, mm-hmm. being able to learn to be instead of to do. Okay. And I know we kind of overdo that a little bit, but that's exactly where I was at. And, and, and that has just been a guardrails going forward. And part of a learning how to be self-aware of my own emotions. Mm-hmm. And so if I was anxious or stressed or fearful, I just pushed it all to the side and yeah. just kept kept hustling. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I went and it wasn't actually an official spiritual director, but it was actually just a couple of guys that I respected, you know, that I went and just cried uncle, you know, yeah. and just said, I, I can't keep doing this, you know, and, and acceptance and felt support in the midst of that, that began to change my orientation early in ministry. And, and so that, you're gonna you've been wanting to say something. Oh no, I I'm long time. You know, I would just say we learned you cannot make everyone happy. <laughs> People mm-hmm. are going to be mad at you if you're in ministry. And yes. that you have to have a mix of work, play, rest, and worship. You just have to have that and to not feel guilty about it. It's okay to take some time where you do nothing. You know, it's okay to have hobbies and to do things you enjoy. It's okay to spend time together as a couple and to say, you know what, we can't do that because we've committed to each other this evening or this weekend or whatever. And that's not popular because people want you available all the time. But those people, it may sound terrible, but people come and go in your lives. And this relationship and the one with your kids is the one that endures. And so you just have to set those guardrails, even if people don't understand. Yeah. So, man, and that's much easier said than done. And I think, you know, it's, it's one conversation when we're talking about people who are at the 
the front end of that lifelong work. I'm sure there are at least some people listening to this conversation who are at the other end of it, mm-hmm. right? Who have lived in that way and if are feeling the pain of having lived overextended for a long term. So what, what about that? What about people who are in the fall or winter of their lives, mm-hmm. who've given their lives to ministry, given their lives to people who, in a sense, use them, and then they moved on, right? Yeah. I mean, right. I, I know so many, so many pastors and ministers, priests, bishops, mm-hmm. who gave their life to work, and then as they aged, they essentially aged out of mattering yeah. to to the people who wanted constant attention. So what, what would you say to those folks, uh, to people who have some gray in their hair and a little bit of an arch in their back mm-hmm. about healing from all of that? I, I think my first response is we really need to seek our green pastures and still waters because mm-hmm. ministry, it just tears tears at us. I say people who have been in ministry long are torn and tattered. They're worn out. And it's, how can I find that place? Sometimes it's a physical place. Sometimes we may need to do a pilgrimage somewhere and take some time to have some refreshing and renewing. It's definitely getting patterns in our lives of silence, getting patterns of just allowing ourselves to hear from the Lord, but sometimes you're so burnt out, you can't hear from the Lord. And so it's Lord, I just, I'm in your presence. I can't feel you but I'm in your presence. And then it's finding friends and hobbies and life that's outside the ministry. Um, But, but I really think, you know, I tell people all the time, you instinctively know what you need to do to heal. It's whether you give yourself permission. Wow. And so as, and I would say, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, it doesn't hurt you or somebody else and it doesn't bankrupt you, then, (laughs) then that's the thing that you need to do. Oh no, I was with you right up. (laughs) (laughs) so so i do think you know i think spiritual retreats are good for everybody Mm -hmm. um just getting away i think pilgrimages of some kind can be good for everyone because we need a reset and the longer you've been in ministry probably the more you need the reset well and and i would and i would say god there's no condemnation in this you know i run across many that are just Oh, I wish I had learned earlier and I just, you know, I did too much of this or I, you know, got mad at my congregation or whatever. And God gets this. He understands we're human and we do stuff when our try to do it in our own control and in our own, he knows we have egos and we have these needs. And so don't let feeling bad about the past have a, a second of influence or power yeah. in your life. Just any new understanding that we come to just rest in that and go, God is going to bless you, you know, and he, he has a good future for you. And, and if you can pass on any of that wisdom to the next generation, then do that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to, those are the best examples that aren't going to be preachy, you know, you know, they're going to be the ones that, Hey, I know what I did and I did too much of this, you know I mean? You know, anybody that we interview for read their book from Billy Graham on, you know, none of them said they wish they had done one more, you know, big crusade or something. <laughs> it was, I wish I had spent more time with my family, right? Wish I had done less, you know? And so, um, 
and and so I think we just listen to those things and and uh, then look at the the good that God has uh, his deep love for us going yeah. forward. I want to ask Janice one more question for you specifically about women in ministry. I'm I'm assuming that all of this that we've been discussing I mean, it's different person to person, no doubt. And it's different person to person, season to season, right? So the way you experience something at one time in your life is very different mm-hmm. at another point in your life. But I I, I do have a suspicion. I, I'm not a woman, but I have a suspicion that all of this conversation, the pressures of success, making a name for yourself, changing the world, I have a suspicion that that typically hits women differently than it does men and wives differently than it does husbands first of all is my hunch right and if so what what do you make of that what and what would we what should we be thinking about our mothers and sisters and wives who are in ministry under those same pressures but feeling them differently right well i think so much of what women feel is they feel responsible for everything else mm-hmm. so it's um you know, we've, we've joked, we need a wife. Um, (laughs) Women need a wife. (laughs) You know, you need somebody who can keep track of when the kids need to be at basketball and everything else. And so you feel more of a tug there. Mm. Um, You know, I always said in women's ministry, the guy pastors would say, well, you just need to get more women to volunteer to come in the evening to do this and this. And it's like, well, but if there's a family crime, wife's going to stay home and bail her ministry commitment, you know, yes. for your volunteers. And so I think there's more pressure in that sense. And I think there is still, though I hate it, there is still a sense of if you are doing well in your career or in ministry, your family is suffering. Wow. So you have kind of, you know, you're just not doing the real priority because your family is suffering. And I think there's always that pull um, within you. And I just think it's more weight. I think women tend to feel more guilty, um, false guilt, but guilt because they just can't do it all. Yeah. And what, what would you say, I mean, if you get the chance to say to bishops and ministry leaders who are responsible for setting those conditions, what, what, what needs to change? Do you think, mm-hmm. And obviously it's not just in our institutions or our circles. I mean, here we're talking about, pressures of our civilization culture broadly but i mean where can we start kind of pushing back against those pressures for the sake of one another that's a good question um i I think a lot of it is accepting or recognizing the pressure recognizing that there are so many other demands um on a woman's time. I mean, what I love though, is a lot of the people in your generation are getting better at sharing household responsibilities. And I know I've had Brent who, you know, Brent can do anything. And so I I couldn't have done what I've I've done over the years without him. But I think recognizing that is always there. And even the affirmation of, okay, we get it that you can't come on Sunday night because, you know, your kids are sick. Um, I just think recognizing the difference that's there is very important. And I think it's getting, and I don't even know what, how to say this, because it's, it's how do we get an imagination for what life would look like and ministry would look like if we weren't efforting, if it wasn't about performance and meeting certain standards and expectations. Mm. And, and um, because I am a believer that if we, 
if, if we don't, if we don't do the work out of our being, out of the fact that God has put these gifts in us and, and called us into this place to give ourselves to the world, but it's because of what he's given us, mm-hmm. um, that what would that look like, mm-hmm. you know, if we really live that way in our world? And, and I think, you know, in most ministries that I deal with and pastors, it's it's still like kind of like a business, you know, mm-hmm. it's there, there are these performance expectations there, you know, you've got to be at all these meetings, you know, there, and I listen to their schedules and I listen and I go, how could they possibly be a healthy human individual? How could they possibly be a healthy husband, you know, a, a dad or parent or mom? It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we have the ability to see what that picture might look like. You know, if everybody really was just operating out of what they've been given um, and it wasn't picking it up and doing it myself to try to meet some expectation of either a parishioner or a a senior pastor or a board or bishop or whoever. Mm -hmm. And so I somehow I think we've got to get a vision of that, you know, what that would look like so that we would know what a person's family life and schedule should actually look like. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I wonder if that's what you're talking about when you talk about a sacramental imagination that when, when we, when we have the accumulated wisdom of the Christian tradition, 2000 years and the witness, not only of the church, but of Israel for thousands more that we, we start to be able, if we hear those stories, we hear those sayings, we, we learn those prayers and those songs, give ourselves to those practices like pilgrimage, mm-hmm. meditation, contemplation. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what brings the kind of imagination so that we, we're not simply under, always under the pressure of right. the American dream in whatever form it's coming to us or the expectations our families forced on us you know what what it means to be a good son or a good daughter i remember um, i haven't shared this with you before so if this is a terrible thing for a parent to think you can correct me publicly but i julie and i were having a, a difficult moment with one of our kids i won't name which one because at some point my kids might listen to this and i know they will assume it was the other one or one of the other ones uh, but we were having a, a particularly challenging moment and I woke up, we'd gone to sleep thinking about it, praying about it. I woke up and I turned to Julie and I said, we need to make sure that we're helping our child become a good person, not making them a good kid. Yeah. That's good. We want to help them become a good person, not make them a good kid. And I think that's some of what you're naming here too, uh-huh. is that like give room for growth over time make room in your life for God to do the slow work rather than letting the pressures of the moment dictate Mm -hmm. who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what you're saying there (laughs) is a a good person different than a good kid. A good kid is somebody that the teachers are all happy with that, Mm -hmm. that the, you know, the way they, you know, the way they get their homework done and they're doing, Mm -hmm. getting all A's and they're doing all those kingdom of man expectations. Absolutely. Uh, which are different than the kingdom of God, you know? Yes. And so I, I, I think we're just barely scratching this, at least 
I would say in my own life, I just think, feel like I'm just scratching the surface of what that actually looks like, mm-hmm. that kind of life. And we were, our daughter um, got married in Italy. And so we, you know, a few years ago and we were there and we went to Assisi mm-hmm. and, you know, we're kind of following in Francis footsteps and stuff. And I was just so taken aback. We walked up to his little, monastery up in the cave cave up in the hill you know and the whole thing was he was there was too much busyness in the cc that he needed to get away and i'm going (laughs) when was this (laughs) how many hundreds of years ago this was and again i just think we're just clueless on Mm -hmm. what that kind of i just i know i am i'm just a worker bee you know and I still have a, I still have trouble, even though I have a little more margin in my life, my professional life. I still have hard time just getting quiet and and letting God breathe into me and let my movement come out of that. Yeah. Uh, I'm just ready to do the next thing, and I, I don't think we have a clue to that. Mm. Well, I, I, we need to have you back on to discuss some of these things further, but I want I want to end with what I think is a very difficult question to to ask. Well, it may be easy to answer, but I'm, I may struggle to ask it the way that I want to ask it. It'd be easy to, to say it the wrong way, but my hunches, and I'm not a therapist, right? I've been to therapy. I need more therapy, but I'm not a therapist. And my sense is so much of what's wrong with a lot of us is that the way we were taught about sin made us distrust ourselves in ways that we can never quite get over. Like you said something, Janice, in this conversation earlier, that you think we know instinctively what we need to heal, but we don't trust ourselves or give ourselves permission. Right. 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 And I know, obviously, we all come from different backgrounds. We all process this differently. And I do believe that sin is damaging for us. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of what I, I said to one of my classes recently Nothing is more sinful than what we've said about sin, except perhaps what we've tried to do to fix it. Mm. That there's something about the way we've grappled with sin that's especially sinful. And part of what's especially sinful about it is I think we convince, at least in some circles, we convince kids that they should not trust themselves. They must not listen to their own heart. They must not attend to their instincts, that all of that is wicked and they have to turn from that to to God, right? And and of course, we want to affirm, yes, we're fallen. Yes, we have to lean on the Lord and not our own understanding. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit as pastors, as therapists, as spiritual directors about how do we get in touch with what is true in us, right? Brent, you talked about years and years ago, recognizing God wanted you to be true to yourself, right? You had to be you rather than performing these roles, but do you see that problem that I'm trying to name? And and if so, what? How do we see to it? Like, how do we address it? Well, well, we've. I'll just jump in. Okay. And, and I feel like that. Um, one of my definitions for sin, and I, I do. I mean, we. Yeah. That's what we deal with every day. Is people of you know are are breaking the natural way that God designed them to be. Mm-hmm. And and they're kind of taking it in their own hands and trying to get their own needs met themselves, and they're doing things that are harming them, you know. And so it's come out of you know I've 
one of my definitions for sin, it's an inappropriate response to a real or legitimate need. Mm. You know, we all have legitimate needs to, to feel love, to feel valuable, to feel significant for relationship, for intimacy, for all kinds of things. And we, um, I, we've the way we've dealt with sin, I think, is don't do it. Stop it. Stop it. Bad, yes. bad. And it drives everybody underground. Mm-hmm. And so because they feel like they're bad and, oh, I can't do that. And that's wrong. And that's a sin. And so they go underground and try to manage it themselves instead of being able to identify. But this is what I'm feeling. This is my the, the human me, the need that I have. I don't know how to get that need met legitimately the way God has designed that help me, you know, and if, if people could come that way before they off into all the counterfeits, because, you know, God has a certain way for those things to get met. If we don't know how to do that, then there's a gazillion counterfeits out in the world that look like they're going to satisfy the need. They look like that's going to be fulfilling to you, but it's just like drinking salt water. It, It doesn't quench your thirst. And, if people, if, if we allowed people to talk about their real honest struggles and we weren't condemning or we weren't pointing the finger at them on bad and stop that and um, you're, you're this or that or ostracize them from the church, I think that's, you know, that's why people aren't flocking to the church, you know, because of the way that we've approached that, I think. And I'm just talking globally, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is something about that legitimate self and being able to be honest and real and genuine. I mean, I think this is why um, spiritual direction is so important. I think that's why, you know, as counselors, that's what we've been led. We have people that are feeling safe enough that they can be the real them, that we can address with no condemnation, you know, um, and uh, help them find their true selves. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> And I would also say, and this may sound trite, but I do believe it's deep truth, for lack of another way to put it. If we can really focus on that we are the beloved child of God, mm-hmm. that he's not looking at us going, oh, my gosh, you messed up on that again or stop it. But that yeah. he absolutely adores us the way I adore my grandkids, you know. And so when I go, oh, honey, don't do that. It's not you slime, you horrible child. It's, yes. oh, I love you so much. I don't want you to do something that might be harmful. And, and I just think we've got to break through some of that past conditioning by knowing how beloved we really, really are. Yeah. And I think what you said, Janice, about finding our still waters, our quiet places, the, you know, finding our cave above a CC. Yeah. I think that that may be what all of us have to do for this healing to start, right? Wherever we happen to be in life, like we've, we've got to get to a place that's quiet enough that we can hear what the spirit is whispering. Yes. I think that, and that's apparently always true. I mean, if it was true for Francis, it's true for us. As long as quiet, the reason I think people don't, want to be quiet and don't find that is because they don't find that to be they don't hear the whisper of god there they hear the torment of their failures and Mm -hmm. and or their or their struggles and and how they failed and so forth i think that voice is so loud in them 
That's if, I'm, if I am going to be quiet, then why would I do that? No. I, I want to turn on the radio, <laughs> you know, I want to turn on the TV or I want to do something else to get that voice away. And so I think that's, I mean, that's the whole role. One of the key roles I think of the church is creating a voice that they hear what the spirit really is saying. You know? Yeah. And, and why we need guides, right? We need therapists, spiritual directors, pastors, mm-hmm. companions of various yes. skills and experience who can just, you know, come alongside mm-hmm. in the silence and guide us to the still waters. Because I, th- I think that's exactly right. Brent. I, I remember reading years ago when I first started praying the daily office and I was doing it, you know, morning and evening. I started noticing like incredible disruption. I was having nightmares and like in the aftermath of praying morning prayer, like I was just in chaos. Mm. And I, I mean, I'm an academic, so I thought I'll read a book about it, (laughs) you know, and sure enough, there is actually a lot of research on what happens to people who enter into meditation Mm -hmm. without a guide, like people who just stumble into some of these practices unprepared for what comes up from the depths when you're still i think i think you're exactly right if 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 we haven't been led to those still waters by other wiser people it's easy to fall in and drown in the still water yeah that's good and i think that you're giving us a good word there and this is this is why people should seek you and and others like you out in their community people who've who've lived it who've walked it and can give us some wisdom about how to do it and how to be how to be present to our own own quiet in that way, right? Our, our own silence. Thank you guys both for yeah. this. I really, really appreciate it. We should do another one just to talk specifically about marriage. I know Julie would really like me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and one about parenting. My kids, yeah. I'm sure, would sponsor it. You know, you know, Chris, there's one last thing I want to say yeah, about please, that. Please. Um, I ask all of my children after they became, ad- became real adults, I said, okay, I want you to be really honest with me. Do you resent the fact that I worked and I was in ministry while you were growing up, that I didn't get to go on all the field trips, that I didn't get to be there for every party, that we were gone for a weekend doing a marriage seminar? And every single one of them said, no, I was so proud of you. And I was so glad you had your own life and you weren't (laughs) focused on us all the time. And so I just want to encourage women when when they do feel that guilt of ministry, Um, You know, if God has called you to do it and you're keeping your life in balance in the way, the best that you can, that it's not bad for your children. It can actually be an incredible thing for your children. That's a good word right there. We need to hear that. Thank you both. I love you. And I'll talk to you. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Bye. Bye.